Testament after 1st and 2nd Timothy. much the wind blows my stuff away. <laughs> so we're in the book of Titus. This is the second book that we are covering in our series on what's called the pastoral epistles. They're called the pastoral epistles because they're written to guys in pastoral ministry, right? Normally when we read a book of the New Testament, one of Paul's letters or epistles, they're written to churches. When we went through the book of Philippians, right, it was written to the saints at Philippi. This book, this letter, is written to Titus, a fellow worker of Paul, just like the letter of Timothy that we finished recently was written to Timothy, okay? So we're looking at this letter as a letter written to a worker of Paul who is on a mission from Paul. Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 1, what Titus is supposed to do. It's great in Paul's letters when he does this for us, right? Verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. He's got churches that Paul started, or fellow workers of Paul started, on this island called Crete. Crete is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, it's not part of the mainland, so when Paul went on his missionary journeys by ship, sometimes he would stop there, and he would go through the island and tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as a result, churches would be planted and started, right? But Paul didn't spend a ton of time there, and so instead of going himself, because he was engaged in gospel ministry elsewhere, and sometimes imprisoned, right? Instead of going himself, he sends his worker Titus to go on this mission to put what remained into order in the island of Crete, in all the cities that he had passed through. You might wonder, what does that have to do with us now? Why are we reading this ancient letter, and what are we supposed to understand out of it for our time now? In order to understand that, we need to understand how much Crete had in common with our society now. Paul says in verse chapter 1, verse 12, he says that one of the Cretans' own prophets says about them, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, that's true. It's not a very complimentary thing to say about a whole group of people, right? But this island was full of people who rejected God, Yahweh, the God of creation they rejected him and had a reputation for being liars for being evil beasts for being lazy guns for being godless people immoral this culture that paul was sending titus into was a culture that was completely immoral because they rejected god right that's our culture our culture wholesale rejects the god of the scriptures in many ways and engages in immoral behavior, just like the Cretans did, just like the Greeks of Paul's day did that he talks about in 1 Peter, okay? This culture that rejects God and has an immoral stance then in society 
is the context that Paul was trying to see these churches planted with. And it's similar to our context. It's a context where we struggle to know what can be believed about what our society says, right? We're in a, a time right now where we're talking about what can be believed about coronavirus, what can be believed about the election, what can be believed about what we see around us. We don't know necessarily what to believe because we see a lot of lying, right? On both sides. And so we're in this context where we have a reputation for not telling the truth. And Paul is sending Titus into that same context to see a church, churches planted, grown, flourishing, and being faithful. So we have that going for us. We also have in this context, a group of people that had a reputation had a reputation for being pragmatic, practicing a pragmatic faith or an empty faith. Paul says in verse 16 that these people profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. In other words, they're, they're happy to have faith in God, but they're not having faith in the God of the Bible. They're having faith in a God after their own making. Okay, That's our culture right now too. I read an article recently in the New York Times that talked about a practice that's common now in corporations to bring in what are called spiritual consultants or uh, ritualist um, creators. I forgot, I forgot to write it down what they're called. There's several names that they're called and their job is to, they have training from theological institutions and their job is to take what we practice in religion to tear it away from the God of the Bible and to put it into a corporate context for their good. So how do you have a, a ritual that helps you engage in a Zoom meeting productively? Not how does this ritual help you connect with the true and living God and the truth of the gospel. It's disconnecting faith from the truth. It's disconnecting faith from truth which leads to godliness. And that was happening in the culture that Paul sent Titus into. That was happening at Crete as well. In Titus's day and in ours, there's the danger of this culture that we swim in seeping into and disrupting the church, right? That's what was happening in Paul's day. That's why he sent Titus to the churches at Crete to put what remained in order. And the implication of that then is that something was out of order, isn't it? Something was left that still needed to be done. And if it wasn't done, these churches would eventually go away from the faith. Or as Paul talks about it in chapter one, turn from the truth. That was happening already as false teachers came into the church, teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach and upsetting the faith of whole families. And that still happens in our day, doesn't it? This letter has direct relevance for what we are experiencing now. It teaches us what we need to do, what we need to believe in order to put the church in order. And that's why it's relevant for us. That's why we're studying it. We're studying it so we can learn the answer to the important question, how do God's people be faithful and flourish in the midst of a crooked and twisted society? How do we be faithful and flourish as God's people in the midst of a culture that wants to claim some of the benefits of God, but wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ? 
wants to reject him completely? How can we remain faithful? And how can we as a church flourish? The answer to that is the main point of the letter to the Titus. The answer to that is we must connect grace and godliness. In other words, the way I would summarize the book of Titus is that grace works. Grace works. That's what we're going to see as we go through the book of Titus. This over, repeated over and over theme of the grace of God, the saving grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how the saving grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it does is it must lead to godliness in the lives of God's people. That's what I mean by grace works. The grace that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ works in our life to produce grace works, to produce godliness, to produce good works. That's what flows from the grace of God in the gospel. We're going to see that in the book of Titus. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to read through that book with you. It's a short, call it a book, it's a letter, right? It's a short letter. 46 verses takes about six and a half minutes to read. So it is not too hard to read through this whole letter. So we're going to do that now. And as we read through, I'm going to draw your attention to a couple of places where I'm seeing that. Grace works. <clears throat> Let's read the book now together. Starting in verse 1. I'm going to grab... My Bible's blowing a little bit, so I'm going to grab this guy here. There we go. So, starting in verse 1, we see the first example of grace works. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. The NIV translates that as leads to godliness. It's the same kind of thing. Knowledge of the truth, grace, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which accords with or leads to godliness. Grace works. Keep going. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. 
This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Here's the second place I see it. Look at number verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach the things that accord with sound doctrine, the sound doctrine of God's saving grace in the gospel. What accords with that? This stuff, godliness. Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the young men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that the opponent, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Look what happens here in verse 11. For the gospel, or excuse me, for the grace of God has appeared, doing what? Bringing salvation for all people. And, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God in the gospel has appeared, training us for good works, training us to live godly lives. Verse 13, waiting for the hope, our, our, waiting for our blessed hope, <clears throat> the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Again in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Grace of the gospel gave us, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Grace works. Verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Saved by grace, right? The good news of the gospel. Verse 6. 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Insist on the grace of the gospel so that, verse 8, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Right? Grace works. Those, these things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Right? We see it in there. Grace works. I want to take us back to chapter 1. And look briefly at Paul's introduction to see how does that grace work? What is that grace and how does it work out in our life? Look with me again at chapter 1. We see in chapter 1, Paul give us his identity as a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and give us his purpose, the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. But before we look at those, I want to look at the grace of the gospel that he shows us in verses 2 to 3. This is where he talks about the hope of why he is an apostle. It's in this hope. Why he works, what he does, is in this hope. Verse 2 of chapter 1, Paul writes, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The good news of the gospel, friends, is that God has promised eternal life. That's the hope that Paul had, right? That's the core of the gospel, is that before time began, God made a promise, made a covenant with his son, that I'm going to not only create a people that's going to rebel, but when they rebel, I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to give them life everlasting, right? The promise that God made Adam and Eve in the garden was that if you turn away from me and disobey, you will receive death, right? But God made a greater promise. He overcame the curse of death, promising to bring life. He promised this long ago, before all time began, which means this promise can only come by grace. Right? It can't be something that you get and you earn because you did better. It's not that God looked at you and said, well, you're trying really hard, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to promise to give you eternal life. It's good enough. No, God, before time began, set his love on you in Christ Jesus. He looked at you and he said, I'm going to redeem you, even knowing all of the rotten, wicked stuff you will do in life, all of the sin that you will be entangled in. I'm going to free you from that. It's a promise that only comes to us by grace because it's a promise that happened before all time began. 
The promise that God gives us is eternal life. This is the hope, right? Paul says, in the hope of eternal life, which God promised. It's this life that he promised. It's not just a quantity of life, though. Quantity being consisting forever, right? Eternal life, never death, okay? It's not just the quantity of life. It's the quality of life. God promised to redeem us from the curse of sin, which exiled us from his presence, right? What happened to Adam and Eve when they turned away from God and sinned? They were kicked out of the garden and God set a cherub to guard the entrance to the garden to say, no, you cannot be with me. But then what did God promise to do? I'm going to redeem you so that you can be with me, so that we get to be in eternal life with God, our Father who loves us, and with Christ Jesus, his Son, who gave himself up for us, and with the Spirit who fills us with his knowledge. That's the promise of eternal life. It's a quality of life, not just a quantity of life. It's a promise that we cling to, that we receive by grace from God. It's a promise that we can be sure of and bank on, because what does Paul say in verse 2? He says, it's in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, promised before the ages began. It's a promise that you can take to the bank because God never lies. He is not able to lie, which is so different than the Cretan culture who's got a reputation for being liars, isn't it? God himself never lies, but we see lies in our culture and we see lies in ourselves and we know sometimes we make promises and don't keep them, right? We know sometimes we make promises and break them sometimes someone tells us something and then does something else should we just take God at his word yeah but do we often no right how can we be sure that we have this God who never lies and a promise that is sure to bank on of this grace of the gospel this eternal life in Christ Jesus we can be sure because of what Paul says next in verse 3 in verse 3 Paul says, not only did God promise this, but he manifested this promise. Verse 3, he says, at the proper time, God manifested this promise in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. God has, all through the history of his people, been manifesting his promise that I will redeem you from the curse of sin and death. And I will bring you into the blessing of eternal life. He promised it to his people long ago and kept that promise. One of the places we see that is in Deuteronomy. Listen to what God says to his people in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 9. He says this, It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. In other words, God promised to Abraham that your children would be like the, the sand of the sea, and that this land that lays before you, I will give you as a blessing. And then God's people went into slavery in Egypt and cried out to him for 400 years, 
And what did he do? He heard their cries and he brought Moses and Moses through God's hand led his people out of Egypt. And eventually God brought his people through the wilderness wandering and into the promised land. And when he's giving this word in Deuteronomy, he's saying, look, all of this was so that you would know that I keep my promises to a thousand generations and beyond. Mm -hmm. God keeps his promises. We know he does not lie because he has. We have this whole book of records of God keeping his promises. Not only that, not only that, but God keeps his promises in his word written. He manifested it, right? Paul said, in his word. We see that in Deuteronomy in the history of God's people, but we see it in his word as well. Remember what the Gospel of John says in John chapter 20. We have this story of Jesus Christ, the Gospel, where our hope is. And what does John write towards the end of that Gospel? He says in chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, God took his promise of eternal life that he does not lie about, and he wrote letters and books through people by, moved by his spirit to show us the reality of these promises, to reveal this to us so that we can know that Jesus is the Christ and that knowing and believing in him, we can have life in his name. God manifested his promises in his word written. But that's not all, right? Because who is God's word? John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. God manifested his promise of eternal life. What Paul says, right? In the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised and then at the proper time manifested in his word. Jesus Christ incarnate is God's promise of eternal life manifested, given to us, shown to us. And how can you know that God will keep his promise? Because Jesus came as a child, born of the Virgin Mary, grew up, followed his father faithfully. And then when it came time, if any time would make sense for God to break his promise, it would be when his own son is facing death, wouldn't it? But what did God do? No, he kept his promise even at the cost of his son, even at the cost of Jesus Christ. His son was faithful to keep his promise that he made with the Father before time began, that you have the hope of eternal life if you trust in him. He kept that promise. And so that's how we know God is faithful to keep his promise. That's how we know that when Paul says, in the hope of eternal life, which God promised before the ages began, and he never lies, we know that's trustworthy Amen. because he's shown us he will never lie. Romans 8, right, says if God has given us his son, how will he not also with him give us all things? Amen. If you've already got the best, most costly gift you could ever receive from someone, how could you hesitate to ask them for something smaller? Right? How, how, could you, how could you doubt when they say, I'm going to give you this too? That's what Paul is saying in Romans. That's why we can trust the promises of God in the gospel. That's the grace of the gospel that's given to us without anything we could do. And what does that grace do? We see that in what Paul writes about himself. What that grace does, that promise, that hope of eternal life, it changes everything about who we think we are. 
That's what Paul says in verse 1, right? Paul, how does he identify himself? A servant of God, an apostle of Christ, Jesus Christ. Paul identifies himself with relation to God. This is Paul, who remember in the book of Acts, is a faithful Pharisee, a man persecuting the way, the followers of Jesus Christ, those who are hoping in this promise, those who said, yes, Jesus, I see that you are the Son of God. I believe. I trust you. Those who did that, Paul was trying to murder them. He says in 1 Timothy, we saw, right? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Right? Paul, as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, as an insolent opponent of the gospel, and now how does he define himself? Paul, a servant of God an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul has been radically changed. He deserved destruction, but the grace of the gospel came in, right? Paul says, the grace of God overflowed for me in 1 Timothy. The grace of the God has given him this new identity as a servant of God, not an enemy of God. As a son, not an enemy. And so, not only Paul, but look what else happens here in verse 4. The grace of God has come to Titus too, right? Titus was a Gentile. And where were the Gentiles before Christ? We read about it in Ephesians. Listen, listen to this language of how Paul describes Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this about Gentiles. Remember that at one time before Jesus, you Gentiles, remember this, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember this, that you were, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Before Jesus, you were separated, alienated, you had no hope. This is where Titus was. Paul, as a good Pharisee, would have called Titus a dog, would have not wanted to touch him or be around him, would have not wanted to be associated with him at all. And what does Paul call Titus in this letter? Titus, my true child in the faith. The grace of God in the gospel has so transformed the identity of Paul and Titus that they are now a family. That Paul says, you are my child. You are not alienated. You are not forsaken. You are not without hope. But you are dear to me, my beloved child. The gospel has united a Pharisee and a Gentile into a family. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ, only the grace of the gospel can do that for Paul and for Titus. And for you and I. The grace of the gospel gives us a new identity as well. Because look what Paul says, who he works for. He says this, A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now God's elect all through the Old Testament refers to God's chosen people, Israel. But in the New Testament, it refers to this new family of Jew and Gentile brought together under the banner of the grace of Jesus Christ. That now are the chosen people of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, as 1 Peter talks about. This new family of God is you and I. If we are trusting in Jesus, 
we have a new identity as the chosen people of God, who are beneficiaries of this promise, the hope of eternal life. The gospel does that, brings these people together. Paul in here, when he's saying he's working for the sake of the faith of God's elect, that includes the Cretans, this group of people who were always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, saved by grace, just like Paul, brought into this new family. That's what the gospel does. It gives this new identity. And then out of this new identity, the work that grace does is brings us to a new purpose, brings us to a new mission. That's what Paul says in verse one, right? His mission, his purpose. I do this, everything in my life, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with or leads to godliness. Paul's mission, in other words, is Listen up, I want you to believe. Not only that, I want you to believe what is true, right? And not only that, I want you to act like you actually believe what is true, right? That's Paul's mission in life, is that others would come into the same understanding, the same revelation of the manifestation of the grace of God given to him, and that it would change them too, that it would bring them a new hope of eternal life that can only be found in Jesus. That's Paul's mission now, and it becomes Titus's mission, right? Paul says, Titus, you're my true child in a common faith. We both have this same hope. We both have this same aim to encourage the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, the grounds of their faith and the godliness that flows from it, right? That's what Paul wants to do. And that now has become the mission of us as a church too, right? That's what grace does, is it brings this new identity and this new mission that now we live for that goal, right? The sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So the question for us then in light of this today, the question for us in light of this, has Paul's work and Titus's work and this word fallen on deaf ears. Do you believe, in other words, or do you not, right? For the sake of the faith of God's elect, you must believe that these things are true. You must believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. You must believe that God sent his son because of his love for you and I. Do you believe? But not only that, do you believe the truth? We live in an age where it is so easy to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and to not mean the Jesus of the Bible at all, right? It's so easy to live in this stage and say, I believe that Jesus was a good teacher. I believe that Jesus had good morals. I believe we'd be better off if we all acted a little bit more like Jesus. That's not the sum of the gospel, friends. That's not what leads to the hope of eternal life. So do you believe the truth? Do you believe the true gospel that we are sinners in need of a savior and that Jesus Christ himself satisfied the wrath that was due us and gives us his righteousness? That united with him, we receive that promise of eternal life. Do you believe, do you believe what is true? But not only that, do we believe, do we believe what is true and do we live like we believe it, right? Does it make a difference in your life? I read a quote earlier this week by Tozer, A.W. Tozer, 
He said, he said something along the lines of plain horse sense tells us that if your faith, what you believe, makes little difference to you, it also makes little difference to God, right? It doesn't really matter if it doesn't do anything. God, the grace of the gospel works. And so if you don't have any effect from your faith, then you might not actually believe the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. That's what we're seeing all the way through here. So friends, does the gospel make a difference in your life? Do you work then now with this new mission to adorn the testimony of God's grace in the gospel? Here's the magnificent thing about this text. How does God manifest his promise of eternal life? Look at that again. Verse 3. At the proper time, he manifested it in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted. We, as broken uh, jars of clay, have been given this precious promise of eternal life, this manifestation of the gospel, which is sound doctrine. We've been given it, and it's been given it to us as jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs not to us, but to God, right? It's a precious thing that we have been entrusted with. Do you live like it? Do you believe that? Maybe, like me, you find if you ask yourself those questions, you say sometimes, and then you say other times, probably not, right? It's so important, friends. I want to leave us with this, where Paul leaves us in verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. We must remember this is all a work of grace. It's not something we do that makes us right with God. It is all a work of grace. As we pursue the work that grace engenders in us, it is the grace of God at work in us. Paul says, I worked harder than anyone, but it was not me, but the grace of God that was in me. Right? That's what we must remember, friends. It's the grace of God that has given us peace with God. That we're not enemies anymore, but we're called friends. We're called fellow workers. We're called servants of God. And we're given this precious message to proclaim. And we do it by grace as it works in us. Let's pray together. Precious God, help us never forget that it's by your grace and your grace alone. It's by your grace that we are brought into the kingdom. And it's by your grace that you sustain us in the kingdom and bring us home to inherit the promises of eternal life. It is nothing we do that can get us there. But God, you call us to do. You call us in response to your grace to work. So Father, I pray that as we go through the book of Titus, help us see how that works. Help us understand it. Move in our spirit to stir us to love good, to love good works, to love to adorn the gospel with our lives because we love a great Savior who has first loved us. Would you help us do that? Help us respond now to that great love as we receive the gift of your grace in your table. Would you help us, we pray. Amen.